Breaking Silos, Episode 2, IBM and SSI with Dan Gisolfi. I'll just say the uh, groundswell that has occurred, the mindshare that's occurred globally around the uh, sovereign identity um, arena has helped to justify now that transition, that readiness to um, you know, put it on a roadmap for uh, commercialization. Self-Sovereign Identity, or SSI, is an exciting new technology that's gaining traction globally. SSI puts you in control of your digital life, enables magical user experiences, and creates powerful new network effects. Welcome to Breaking Silos, the first program dedicated to the business models of self-sovereignty and the path to re-decentralizing the internet. I'm Timothy Ruff, your host and general partner at Digital Trust Ventures. Our guest today on Breaking Silos is the CTO of Decentralized Identity and Open Security within IBM's security division. He's been the driving force behind IBM's activities related to self-sovereign identity pretty much since IBM started getting interested in self-sovereign identity. I first met uh, this gentleman when he flew out to Salt Lake City uh, a little over two years ago in late 2017 when I was still with Evernim, and he wanted to personally convey, along with a colleague that he brought with him, IBM's growing interest in self-sovereign identity and their interest in potentially becoming a steward of the sovereign network, which uh, actually happened a couple months later. And when that happened, it brought a wave of publicity to self-sovereign identity and to the sovereign network specifically, and new interest from serious players all over the world. And, and soon after, uh, Cisco and Workday and others uh, joined Sovereign, and the rest is history. Just tremendous momentum. It really was uh, started by, by this gentleman and what he got IBM to do and to see. Uh, very, very exciting. The blogs and papers and different projects that he's been involved with, that he's helped create uh, just from inception to actually going public. And the wonderful thing is IBM has been very public about their support of this concept. And it's really been under his leadership. And these pieces, this material is really some of the most impressive and comprehensive that you'll find on the topic. He's a driving force behind taking SSI into production, to solve real-world problems, and that's uh, the, the main thing we're going to talk about today. Is how do you take this technology and solve real problems and, and make money? You got to do one or the other. You got to solve a problem or make money or both in order for something to become viable. And I was going to mention something about the sustainable business models that he's seen. Uh, some of this I, I know has to remain under wraps. We might not get into that as much as we'd all like to. Uh, but hopefully he will share, uh, at least give us a glimpse of where he thinks IBM's future with self-sovereign identity. A warm welcome to Mr. Dan Gisolfi. Hey, thank you, Timothy. First of all, big change at IBM. Everything related to self-sovereign identity was moved into the security division. What's up with that? Yeah, so um, just like uh, our daily work in the de decentralized identity space about helping our uh, clients begin their digital journey, we as, as uh, innovators are, are part of that journey as well, taking the concept, you know, the, back to the innovator's dilemma, taking for something from concept and helping not just our client, potential clients understanding, but our own business understanding and how to figure out where it's relevant within existing business model and business organization structures. So, you know, we, 
we started our work at IBM in this space um, a number of years ago, even before blockchain hit the space. And uh, we did so in research. And we've been stewarding that from the research perspective. And then finally landed in, in blockchain because of the, the relevance to the decentralized ledger that would be necessary for an SSI model or decentralized identity model. And from, uh, from there, we've now uh, finally landed um, the mission within IBM, uh, where we believe it has always properly belonged, but just wasn't ready yet. And that is under IBM security relative to our identity access management portfolio. IBM security, I imagine it, it sounds big. That's a big part of IBM. I mean, is there a is it 10% of IBM? Is it 5%? I don't know the exact percentage, but I know I can throw out some numbers. For example, I think we manage 55 million identities. Um, we are, it's a business unit uh, within IBM, just at the same level you have uh, IBM Cloud or IBM Watson. We are focused on not just um, identity access management, but also threat management. Uh, and, and essentially digital trust for our enterprises. So this is a sign, I, I would take this as a sign of seriousness about the technology. I mean, you could almost see the blockchain group as, as being kind of experimental or exploratory and security is the big existing going concern. Moving that over there is like, hey, this is getting ready for prime time. We're actually going to sell this and install it and use it, right? Uh, you're spot on. In fact, um, you know, you mentioned when we first met uh, several years ago. Uh, at that time, the we realized internally that the the proper home was security. It was around identity access management, um, and the, what I call I call identity next, the next wave of identity access management. You know, just like uh, uh, you know, startups have to you know present and uh, justify to VCs. Um, you know, inside IBM and large companies like IBM, it's the, the innovative dilemma exists as well, and uh, it's just at that time, it wasn't ready yet. It still was in that early incubation phase. But over the past several years, working with you know, partners like uh, Evernim and, and communities like Sovereign and the, and the I'll just say the uh, groundswell that has occurred, the mindshare that's occurred globally around the uh, sovereign identity um, arena has helped to justify now that transition, that readiness to um, you know, put it on a roadmap for uh, commercialization. Um, that's a great segue to the next question I want to ask you is about those partnerships. Um, the first big one, I remember at the No Identity Conference, I was sitting in the audience and, and, and seeing IBM on stage with SecureKey. And, um, and this is why I was surprised because it was not too many months after that when, when you guys reached out to us and said, we want to fly out and talk. And I thought, well, I mean, I think when you came out, the first question I asked you, Dan, is, you know, didn't you just announce something with SecureKey? Why are we talking? And then you... You talked about self-sovereign identity, and, 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 and we hit it off from there. But what's the latest with the IBM partnership with SecureKey, if you can share? Because there was a public announcement. You can share whatever's appropriate. And then I'd like to have you update on what's going on with Sovereign and any uh, other similar types of partnerships you might be working on that you're able to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so on the SecureKey topic... Um, I would just say same old, same old. What I mean by that is, you know, even when we first met and the, anou the announcement that occurred, um, the driver around that effort with SecureKey and the partnership with SecureKey was really stemmed from the fact that from our blockchain initiatives, our IBM blockchain business platform um, solution, uh, we were looking for, uh, and still are, you know, real, um, you know, killer apps or killer solutions or ecosystems that that are requiring the benefits of a blockchain ledger. 
And um, what came to us at that time were seven very uh, strong and existing IBM customers uh, who are banks in, in, um, in Canada. And they were all co coming together around one of their partners, which was SecureKey. And our role in that whole effort is really being the, the operator of the SecureKey network for those seven banks. So it was really a, a ecosystem, a community of, uh, of, uh, of vendors and, and, and banks to put together that network. And it's running today. It does that, does the secure key model fit the decentralized strategy that I've been advocating? No, and I, I told you that uh, from uh, our first meetup. Um, but you know, we, we also serve our customer needs um, uh, and our, sometimes our strategy and our customers' needs don't always come together. Now, having said that, for those uh, following the, uh, what's going on in Canada, uh, if you look at the provincial and federal uh, government interests in decentralized identity, uh, they are typically all following the, the I'll say, the, um, the path that we have been advocating, uh, we, the, the uh, self-sovereign identity community. And if you look at what's happening in some of the open source um, uh, work groups, Secure Keys has entered into them and is looking in, trying to tap in and, and I, I will say, bridge what they've done to be able to support and be interoperable in the future with um with uh, the self-sovereign identity mission. Now, I'm not here to speak for SecureKey, and you know, I'll, I'll, maybe that's another podcast option for you. But um, I, I would say that they, you know, they, I think they recognize uh, where the industry is going and how they're going to help their banks um, uh, segue into that. As for uh, Sovereign, we we've been uh, a founding member since the you know day we entered um, back in uh, to early 2018. You know, have been very proud of and and uh, ecstatic about the. the effort and, and the communities, I'll just say, events that they've held worldwide and the mindshare that they've captured worldwide um, has been just unbelievable. They've really taken the baton and, and uh, around self-sovereign identity and really created the message and, and created this huge effect. And, and we always say that it's not one company, not one organization, not one government that is going to make this change. But as a community, Sovereign, what to me, the Sovereign Foundation has really brought together the epicenter uh, of, the, of a community to, to be a catalyst for that change. And, and I'm so proud to be part of it. You know, our, our work there continues. Yeah, and, and you've contributed as well. Um, are there not some committees or work groups that you participate in with the Sovereign Foundation? Yeah, sometimes too many. <laughs> um, the main one, uh, being part of the Technical Governance Board, for Sovereign, um, but uh, I think one of the main contribution areas that I've been uh, focused on is the Governance Framework Working Group. And that's that's really, to me, it's it's like the heart and soul of what has to be done in this space for any type of uh, decentralized ecosystem. But governance frameworks are extremely important, and you just emphasized it as well. Would you mind for our audience, uh, in absence of having a podcast dedicated to the topic, would you mind giving a condensed version of what is the sovereign governance framework or what is a governance framework generally and why is it as crucial as you just said? So when you think about what it takes to be decentralized, what it, you, it means that you have to have some sort of guidelines of purpose, policies, if, if anything, you know, the legal, some Drummond would say, Drummond Reed would say the BLT, the business, legal and technical policies that are necessary to bring together a community to have them operate in a, in a manner of trust 
to establish trust. Can you give an example? Yeah, so an example in the sovereign community, um, to the the actual participants, the, the, the folks like IBM who, who stand up nodes to run the ledger, to, to participate in that role, you need to adhere to certain guidelines and certain and be compliant with certain technical policies and business policies. Otherwise, the network itself as a ledger would not be trusted, right? And so some of that is legal contracts. Some of that is adhering to, like I said, policies and, and um, that, that need, could be audited, for example. When we talk about, you know, trust frameworks or governance frameworks, these exist today in, in the brick and mortar world, right? Not necessarily the digital realm. What we're trying to do is we're trying to help businesses understand is that as, as they begin their digital journey, trust frameworks or governance frameworks are going to be paramount for, for that journey. They, they have to understand that as a, each community they participate in, they're going to have to understand what the, the guidelines and boundaries are for the, that participation. And that is all done through governance frameworks. I've heard an analog. Um, when you flip over your credit card, you see all those logos, including Visa and MasterCard and Star and Plus and all these other things. I've heard an analog that that those are really trust frameworks about how the network's going to work and how the merchant's going to operate and the acquiring bank and the issuing bank and all of that. And they aren't all part of the same company uh, necessarily, but they adhere to a governance framework, which is what makes it all continue to work together. Would you agree with that analogy? Spot on. I'll, I'll give you another one. There's um, um, at IBM, we do you know a fair amount of um, consortium or uh, building, network building. Um, in one industry, the healthcare industry, there's a, a, a network called HUN, the Healthcare Utility Network, and it's made up of you know dozen or more so very large participants um, in, in that industry. And they to put up their ledger, to put up their decentralized network, they're going to need a governance framework at all levels, not just at the level of how the ledger itself is managed, but how the information that is shared within the ecosystem how that's managed and what, for example, even simple things like what type of credential schemas are viable or accepted within such an ecosystem? What type of or what required levels of proof requests are required, are um, mandatory within an ecosystem or, or acceptable? If I'm, if I'm going to accept a, a credential that's been issued by one of the members, what processes do they have to prove that they followed or, or, or rules or regulations that they complied with in order for me to feel comfortable accepting that credential, right? So, so it's not just about the tech, right? It's, it, there's, there's a lot of business, legal, and uh, pol technical policy activity that has to be uh, um, identified. And that's, to me, it's a huge consulting opportunity going forward, so... Cool. Um, all right. Uh, here's an open-ended question. You can attack this any way you want. And that is, what are the most common questions you hear? And, and notice I'm not, I'm not constraining that to internal within IBM or from your customers or from analysts that you talk to. I'm sure you get questions from all, all sides, I'm sure. Uh, but what are the most common questions or the biggest misunderstandings that you wish everyone would really just get or understand that maybe they have a hard time getting? Oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> so um, the first one is when you when you're dealing with emerging technology, you want to take be able to take leads of of interest from all different possible perspectives. For good for the good and for bad, a lot of the early leads in the decentralized identity space have really percolated from this notion of blockchain. Well, for your audience, I want to make it loud and clear: 
this topic is not about blockchain. It's about identity. It's about privacy. It's about a disruptive shift uh, on how we're dealing with our, our personal data and our, 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 the trust around our information. Blockchain is just an enabler, right? So the first, the first problem or the biggest misunderstanding is that I, you know, decentralized identity is a blockchain uh, topic. It's, it's not. Decentralized identity is made possible through dis, uh, decentralized te uh, ledger technology like blockchain. But then the, that's it. The conversation should end there. What we really want to do is take the conversation from the top down. What's the problem you're trying to solve? Why are you interested in, in beginning your digital identity journey? And, and, and take it from there. The other question I, I typically get, and it leads into this, is, you know, why blockchain? Well, again, once you start there, people understand, you will begin to understand that the, the reason for blockchain is, is quite minimal. I mean, we just kind of captured that it's really about the, the a web of trust around, uh, to establish the exchange of, um, of public keys. Um, and yes, the ledger is used for other, other things, but it's transparent, it's immutable. Could this be done without blockchain? We can get into that debate, but the point is that once you have the infrastructure, Timothy, laid down, the roadways, if you want, the real goal here is about selling the cars or the to continue the analogy, we want to be able to exchange trusted data. And to be able to exchange trusted data, um, we need to have this infrastructure in place which where blockchain is solving a, um, a key piece. Now, um, what I try to, or I wish everybody would, would, that I talked to would kind of take a different tack as opposed to just, you know, relying on some of the hype. Take, I, I use the mantra of listen, learn, act. Listen, learn, act. Step back. Take the time to understand what the real problem we're trying to solve, what this, this SSI arena is all about. Learn. Take the time to pick up some tools and get started. Now, one of the things that we've done at IBM is, you know, my focus has been let's let's establish or reduce, uh, or I'm sorry, improve developer time to value. Let's forget, let's avo avoid having the developer learn about the crypto and and all the different underlying infrastructure. Let's get them started on delivering credentials, digital credentials, and verify them as simple as possible developer time to value. So that's the learn piece. So getting them, giving them the kings, he's the kingdom of infrastructure so they can just get started. So listening on uh, around what, and, and taking time to learn, learning through, through example, and then being able to make educated decisions, business decisions, being able to act in a, in a manner that you can get into discussions like what are the business models? Where are the possible business models? How do I start this journey and evolve into create, you know, to, to, to create smaller ecosystems that will create a network effect. We can't have those conversations until people can get out of, I'll say, the gutter, if you wish, of the infrastructure, because we're just getting mired down into the conversations around tech, around blockchain. So I'm going to put you on the spot. You said, listen, learn, act. Yeah. And you said, part of listening is understanding what's the problem to be solved. What is the problem? to be solved. Let's, let's pretend for a second that self-sovereign identity is the solution to something. What's the problem? The problem to be solved is that we're trying to fix who controls your information, your trusted information. You being an entity, it's not just a person. It could be a thing like, like a device. It could be a business. But if we just can keep it simple for, just for the conversation, 
as individuals, but we want to, this is a disruptive shift. We're trying to, to change the model where we are in control. When, when someone wants uh, information from us, we get to exchange it. We get to get consent. We get to manage that. Much different from the way the model is today. And why, what's the problem that we're, that the reason why we want a different model? Well, think about what's happened over and over and over again. Individuals being, um, being impacted by hacks that in some cases, they're not even part of. They're just, their information was being managed by somebody else. That's not acceptable. Instead of depending on others to fix it, how do we participate in a model that allows us to be in more control of the situation? Very, very good. Okay, question about Fabric. Fabric is the blockchain technology, distributed ledger technology, probably more accurate, developed by IBM. And it's it's been widely accepted. It's completely open source. It's now technically, or not technically, it's, it's Hyperledger Fabric because IBM no longer controls the source code. Hyperledger does, but it was donated by IBM. That technology is still using an identity system based on CAs, certificate authorities. Is that system ever, is IBM ever going to be confident enough in SSI that they would change fabric or somehow make it compatible with SSI? Yeah, so a lot to talk, talk about there. So um, first off, um, one of the other bad questions I get or often, questions I get often misunderstood is that Hyperledger is, is equals fabric, right? That people, there's an assumption, they say, you know, uh, IBM's blockchain is Hyperledger. Hyperledger is a project in the Linux Foundation. Within that project, there's many sub-projects Fabric being one DLT implementation. By the way, Hyperledger Indy is another, Hyperledger Aries is another, and so forth. The two DLTs, the distributed ledger technologies in the Hyperledger project, one being Indy, which is purpose-built and contributed by Evernim a number of years ago, um, that's based on one, uh, you know, it's purpose-built for decentralized identity and it did specification. Hyperledger Fabric is, is more generalized solution for business building business networks and using smart contracts. Now, there's no reason whatsoever that you couldn't take Fabric and take the did spec and implement a, um, a, a, the did spec on top of Hyperledger Fabric, right? That could be done. In fact, we know of companies doing that. And there's no reason why companies like IBM couldn't do that, right? Your audience should ask, well, why, IBM, why don't you go do that? The answer really comes down to the very simple problem, resources and priority and demand. When, when, as I was mentioning before, we're trying to build the roadways here to create a new marketplace. And yes, technology, there's could be different ways to, to leverage technology like Fabric or like Indy, but to solve the problem that we're trying to solve out of the gate early on, the beginning of the journey, what we really need is a reference architecture that will help us begin as a catalyst to bootstrap the marketplace. Over time, there's no reason why we couldn't actually have interoperability at what I still refer to as layer one. We'll get into that later, I'm sure, in our conversation. Layer one of the infrastructure where it is the, the, the ledger, the network, and um, you know, it doesn't matter if you're using Indie or Fabric or you know, maybe Microsoft has Ion or whatever is running at that layer. But to get started initially, we need to make sure we have a, a, a vertical stack that works and uh, just spending time on, on implementing something that is already working in, in Indie. Why do we need to build it on Fabric now? Having said that, this conversation internally at IBM happens quite often. In fact, um, at one point, uh, I actually uh, had my, my team 
working on implementing what's called an MSP, um, member service provider, with, that is the, a part of the fabric infrastructure where you really have three choices. Today, you can be, you can be using a certificate authority within the, the fabric um, network, with, and that is used to identify the particip participating nodes within the network. There's another technology, if you choose not to use a CA in Fabric, it's, it's uh, identity mixer or, or basically a derivative of the old IBM uh, technology that we open source called identity mixer. That's another way of handling identity between the nodes. What my team was looking at is actually using verifiable credentials between or DIDs between uh, those participating nodes. Now we started that work. Let's just say that there's some non-trivial problems that have to be worked out to actually implement that. If we were to continue it, it would be something we would, in, you know, uh, contribute back to Fabric. But again, it comes down to purpose and and, and priority. Um, what I wrestle with all the time is that there's a lot of things we can do as technologists, but we need to kind of figure out where to focus our efforts because and and how do we get to um, to a point where we can justify spending more time on you know research-oriented problems. Wonderful. All right, now let's get to a topic I know is near and dear to your heart, and that is network of networks. And I want to preface it by sharing just on a personal side or, or professional, but self, selfish side is probably the better term. When we launched Sovereign, the reason we gave it away to first to the Sovereign Foundation and then and then the source code was was donated to Hyperledger, where it became Hyperledger Indie, reason we did that is because we wanted to take away any reason that anybody had to do anything competitive. Just open it, give it so that anyone could use it anywhere. And why do anything competitive? Well, even going to that extreme, there's still competitive networks that are showing up. Some of them even using the Hyperledger Indie code. When I say competitive, competitive to Sovereign. Um, and they've got their own reasons that, you know, I've heard criticisms, maybe Sovereign is too US-centric or... Um, you know, they don't like the governance or it's I, I've heard criticisms. It's too permissioned or it's not permission or it's not permissioned enough um, it, it, all over the map. I'm sure you, you've heard those as well. But the one the one reality, regardless of our intent or plans or, or tactics we use to avoid this, there are other networks popping up around the world. And from and so we had to adjust. We had to start thinking, all right. If self-sovereign identity really believes that the individual is portable and there's going to be these other networks and, and even though we open source the code, not everyone is using it, then fine, let's step back and abstract one more level and say, gosh, we need these networks to interoperate uh, so that people truly can be portable. Otherwise, we're just going to have another collection of silos, which is the whole one of the, not the whole point, one of the, one of the main things we're trying to get away from. So network of networks is something you've taken an interest in. And I, I know you've been working on this behind the scenes. I haven't had an update for a little while. If, if you would maybe correct my, my characterization here, if it's wrong at all, or kind of give an update on that any way that you can. Yeah. Um, and this is, there's so much is going on in this space right now. So um, first let's talk about the concept uh, and the motivations. First of all, no one government, no one organization, no one company um, can fix this problem of bringing trust back to our... our, 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 and, our and, and no one code base, as we've learned, even if you give it away. Bingo, bingo, right? Now, so, and then when you get into technology like um, what we're using in, in, in uh, DLT, you know, or blockchain ledger technology or distributed ledger technology, algorithms have limitations. They have thresholds. 
And even what we found in Sovereign, like with, with using Indy, you know, technically you can only have so many nodes that will operate and respond in a given in a acceptable period of time to, to achieve a consensus. So the point here is that even if it was technically, even if it was um, um, politically possible or accepted or socially accepted to have one ledger for the globe, technically it doesn't scale. With ledgers like uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum, um, Ethereum, of course, has a whole lot of transactions. You know, Bitcoin has a whole lot of transactions. And I think that people might uh, think that identity is the same. But isn't the architecture that, that you favor uh, one where there's actually not very many transactions that actually happen on the ledger? And there, there's really just some keys that have to be looked up and, and most of the transactions are reads and not writes and most everything happens off ledger. Does that affect your answer? Uh, it, it does. Um, but I also wanted to point out that we're very focused on a permission ledger. Um, and so... So, so I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you bring together some of the architectural configuration of the ledger of the ledgers that we want to to deploy here, some ledgers may be permissionless, some ledgers may be permissioned. Um, again, in the in the in the diverse community, there's going to be different personalities or different um, uh, I'll just say uh, reasons for different configurations. But regardless, Timothy, of how a ledger's configured, if we're all using the same underlying technology and, and, and standards, the APIs for like the did spec, is which, which is really the focus here at, at this level, then it shouldn't matter, right? So, but the point is that we could have multiple ledgers that are sisters, if you wish, a network of ledgers that can all participate. Maybe they, the governance of those ledgers maybe will be different. Maybe the configuration of those ledgers will be different. The governing bodies may be different, but the actual use of those ledgers from a programmatic standpoint in the broader ecosystem should be interoperable. That's what we're trying to steer towards. Okay. And and the only way that could possibly work is if the ledgers were using the same protocol. I, uh, maybe that's an overstatement when I say possibly work. There's there's ways to create interoperability. But I mean, the, the goal here with this network of networks, with, with what you're calling, and, and is trust over IP the same thing as network of networks? Are those synonymous? Well, yeah. So, so trust over IP architecture so is, or, um, is a way of looking at the, a reference implementation of all of the pertinent layers of uh, technology that have to be woven together uh, to address a, what we believe is a decentralized identity solution. Now, our conversation up to now has been look, thinking about the network itself, the ledger, which is referred to as at layer one of the trust over IP architecture. Layer one is where a, a DID registry or DID network is, is, is um, associated. Now, today we have this, the sovereign public ledger. That's an exemplar of a DID ledger at layer one of trust over IP architecture. When we talk about network of networks, there can be other ledgers at layer one, the assumption is that they're all going to adhere to a specific standard API, a standard and specification for uh, APIs, right? And now that could, it don't, we don't necessarily say that it has to be uh, Ethereum or Hyperledger Indy or what, whatever implementation you want to come up with. What we are saying is that the APIs have to be the same. Now, early on though, but early on for trust over IP, because we're at the early days here to begin our journey, there's a community that's saying, 
let's at least pick one for now to get interoperability for the reference architecture of the entire stack up off the ground, and we're picking indie for that. That's not to say that that's not going to be that's the only one. Okay, so uh, you're you're painting kind of a, a mental model here that's a little bit hard to do with just the spoken word. It is you're talking about layer one and layer two, and, and as long as there's just two or three layers, you can you can get away with it. But I know there's more. Um, is there? Are there some images? Are there places people can go online or papers about this, or are those still uh, work in progress? Um, if you go to GitHub under Hyperledger Aries RFCs, there is a Trust Over IP architecture paper that's there. Plus, depending on when this podcast is going to be uh, made live, um, we're assuming that by the end of February, there'll be an IEEE paper that's going to be published on this very topic. This stack, is this going to be somewhat analogous to the OSI stack? Somewhat. Uh, it, it, we're, we're, we're trying to find, you know, look at that kind of as, as a, a base model. But um, if you allow me to just describe it. So essentially, there's, think about it, there's a lot of um, ingredients out there for dealing with decentralized identity, right? We have work going on in the standards communities, whether it's uh, W3C, Oasis, we have work going on in the Decentralized Identity Foundation called DIFF uh, at the specification level as well as the code level. We have work going on in Hyperledger uh, at the specification level and the code level. That's in Aries and in Indy. All these piece parts, right? How does someone make sense of it all to come up with a solution? How does an, how does a, uh, an enterprise look at what's going on in the open source industry and say, how do I trust a vendor or, or know what a vendor is you know, basing their, their solution on and how they're going to achieve interoperability. Trust over IP is a way for us as a community to say, here's how, here's a mechanism for how to bring together or view architecturally all these components that are out there. So there's four layers. Layer one is your, your, your um, did specification or your did ledger um, layer. You could, this is where you have networks of networks, all right? Layer two is a what we call DIDCOM. It's a protocol for secure communications between the wallets the, and the agents that are going to participate um, in, in the space. And, and that's not communication between the ledgers. No, no, no. That's not a good point. That's that's communication between the this communication between the actual software, your wallets that you that you would store your your credentials on, your identities on. I think this is a critical point because I have I've heard many times where people representing different blockchains feel like their blockchain has to create interoperability with another blockchain, and they're actually trying to get the blockchains to talk to each other. Yeah, wrong and, problem. Wrong problem, right? <laughs> well, we want well maybe same problem in, in this way to to think about it because we we want interoperability, but maybe that's the wrong place in the stack to create the interoperability is to try to get the the ledgers to talk to each other. And that's actually kind of analogous to silos in identity where silos talk to each other, where we're saying, actually, no, you don't need to do that anymore. Create interoperability with the individual. Just make sure that the individual, when they go to the different silos can be recognized. And that that's the, what you're talking about here. When you talk about Aries at the, at the layer two, you're actually saying, we're not having the ledgers connect to each other or, or create interoperability directly. The interoperability is at a different layer 
where the individuals or, or the wallets that are now uh, talking to each other, the agents technically are, are doing the agent to agent interaction has nothing to do with which ledger they're using underneath. Is that correct? Spot on. Uh, we're, we're exactly. When, when an enterprise or, wants, or a consumer wants to go pick up a, a decentralized identity software asset, a wallet, if you wish, on their phone or on their, for their laptop, they should be able to say that software will be able to talk to any did compliant, specification compliant ledger out there, regardless of the underlying DLT uh, technology, whether it's Hyperledger, Ethereum, whatever. That's, that's plumbing, right? So when we say DIDCOM communications, we're assuming that, that the communications is a protocol between the various wallet software, but the wallet software should all be able to talk to a common API for all ledgers at layer one. And so it's, it, it's almost as if the blockchains are <laughs> a database. Well, Right, well, it's like exactly, you can use that database or that database or that database doesn't matter. My relationship with Dan uh, will continue, and 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 we can have a relationship. And I, I literally have keys to my side of the relationship. You literally have keys to your side. And regardless of which database or blockchain or DLT that I use for my stuff or you use for your stuff, our relationship is abstracted from that and, and separate and and can persist regardless of which blockchain we want to use. Right. I'm I'm, I'm so happy you actually said it that way because. Theoretically, we're not even in, in trust over IP architecture at layer one. We're not even proclaiming it must be a blockchain at layer one, right? We're, all we're saying is that the implementation of the of the uh, the did specification, the ledger, if you wish, has to be has to have an API that can be is well understood by all the layer two participants. And this is another reason why it it's a little more than slightly annoying when people call it blockchain identity. And and I know they don't realize what they're what they're saying. And I, I know what someone means when they say blockchain identity, but but no, this is self-sovereign identity. This is the ability for me to connect directly with you and for us to have a relationship that belongs to you and me and no one else and isn't beholden to any particular blockchain. Yeah, yeah. And this goes back to our early part of the conversation, which is we instead of having the bottoms up conversation, tech blockchain first. We need to talk about it tops down, you know, identity solution first, identity solution driven first, right? And just to tee off the, the final layers here, so you have layer one is the, led, the ledgers, layer two, uh, the network of ledgers, layer two is the DIDCOM communications between the agents and the wallets. Layer three is actually, to me, the sweet spot. Layer three of the trust over IP architecture is the exchange of trusted data. To me, that's where the whole, that's the holy grail. That's where the new marketplace will be. That's where we will start talking about the reputation economy, where individuals will start to have, be able to take control of something that they, they lack in finance today, we, where we're dictated to what a, a FICO score is for us. What if we could all be able to manage our own trust score, right? And be, and, and be able to deal with consent in a much more privacy a more private manner. And I love, I love that you called it trusted data and you didn't say identity. And we talk about self-sovereign identity and people start thinking about identity and authentication and just proving that someone is who they claim to be. And, and people get tunnel vision about that concept, but man, this is so much bigger. Yes. We're going to exchange identity information with each other. Yes. We need to know who we're dealing with, but gosh, that's just the beginning of our interaction. I want to make sure that you're Dan, you want to make sure that I'm Timothy, but after we got those formalities out of the way, which probably are going to be done behind the scenes passively anyway, without us even 
actively realizing that it just happened, now we're going to begin our real conversation, which might be exchanging data, it might be a phone call, it might be exchanging files or making a payment or really anything. It's so rich and wide open. And I love that you are leading IBM, even though you're, you're the decentralized identity guy, you're leading IBM to say, no, this is trusted data. This is where it opens up to really anything and everything. I, I really think that you've got it, and I'm pleased that you do. And, and, uh, and, and that's why we, when we talk about trust over IP architecture, we don't say identity in there all, at all. It's trust, but trust over IP, right? We have the IP layer. We need to establish trust. It's trust for all data. Now, even the words credential, like if you look at the, over at the layer three of the trust over IP architecture that we've laid out at this juncture, it talks about the exchange of credentials. because. We, you know, we're getting hung up on English words here, but we have to, we're, we're, this, is, this is evolutionary. This is very disruptive, Timothy. We're starting to create a new marketplace. We, we're starting off with identity, but identity is one form of very important personal data, trusted personal data, right? We believe this, once we lay out this architecture, it's going to go much broader than that. Love it. Love it. All right. Well, we are running out of time. This has been super interesting to me. I hope so for our guests as well. I know you and I could go on and on and on. There are a couple of things I would like you to wrap up with, and that is IBM's plans for self-sovereign identity and trusted over IP in the near future. What about that can you share? Yeah, so um, what's happened over um, a period of time is that we, we've, we've seen the market now I'll say start to take hold of, 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 uh, of more momentum. And um, what we're doing is besides making available a sandbox, a tech preview sandbox, for developers to get going, we're now starting to work on the incorporation of these capabilities, these decentralized identity capabilities for issuers and for verifiers within our enterprise cloud identity offerings. So today IBM has a portfolio, a cloud-based portfolio for how identity access management can be, is addressed by admins and IT professionals or many of our enterprise clients. Just the same way that they allow user IDs and passwords and different policies to be created and managed for all different sorts of deployed applications, they're going to also be able to deal with different policies using decentralized uh, credentials. Uh, so um, we'll, we're going to be folding that in and, and, re and slowly releasing that out to the marketplace is very important for us not to go and say this is a GA product too early because we want to make sure that the industry is ready to, with interoperability. And, and uh, we haven't mentioned this yet, but we are working with uh, several, but one specific partner, in, in this case, Evernim, uh, to make sure that interoperability is, is achieved. It is very important before we go to big, big um, customers um, that, we, that there's no single vendor that they can have to point to. That's, there should be a, several vendors that can be pointed to and their software can be all viewed as interoperable for freedom of choice, right? Because at the end of the day, the, the holder of credentials is going to decide which kind of wallet they want, right? Which type of agency they account they want to create, but, at the end, but they need to make sure that everything's going to be interoperable. So. Um, what we're working on right now is that integration with our existing port product portfolio, as well as interoperability uh, with uh, early vendors. 
You had a very interesting post on LinkedIn recently where you were lamenting some decisions that were being made by my home state of Utah in regards to driver's licenses. And that's something you and I've talked about a little bit in the past. Um, but you're seeing kind of a, a, a trend, a little bit frustrating, I think, for us to, to see. Uh, but I'd like you to, if you would, expand a little bit on uh, maybe summarize what you were frustrated by and what you see happening in SSI as it relates to the driver's license space. And when I say SSI, verifiable credentials. It's a real important discussion topic for me. I view passports and driver's licenses, tier one identity credentials, and they're, they're, they are instrumental for so many things we do today in, in our daily lives around the globe. And the driver's license, as an example, is based on a data format called ISO 18013 and is, has been so for many, many years. In the U.S., the vendors that are associated with deploying compliance software to put out driver's licenses, let's just say it's a, it's a monopoly right now. I mean, 49 of the 50 states in the U.S., for example, use one vendor. That's okay. I mean, I'm not going to get into that topic. But as we move forward to digital credentials, enabling citizens on their digital journeys, we need to make sure that one important point is addressed, that our digital credentials, regardless of what the content is, regardless of what industry the credentials from, whether it's your public sector, private sector, whether it's your library card, whether it's your employee card, whether it's your driver's license, they should all be adhering to a common set of standards and protocols and they should be interoperable across all sectors. Given that premise, given that goal, the where things are going today is that the DMVs are following a add-on, a, a, I'll just say the, an additional amendment to the ISO 18013 specifications called ISO 18013 Part 5 for mobile driver's licenses. Now this specification is a, technically it works. The problem is, is that it addresses one document, a driver's license, and the, interoper the interoperability of that one document across different jurisdictions, different state lines, if you wish. It is not addressing the bigger problem of how, for example, a traffic cop, a traffic officer would do a traffic stop and ask for three documents, an insurance document, an auto registration, and a driver's license. They're only dealing with one document. They're not looking at the big picture. They're not realizing that credentials need to be addressed in a much broader manner the way we are doing so in decentralized identity and the self-sovereign identity movement, where we're thinking about this at a much broader abstract layer. So given that, um, yes, my frustration is, is that when I see DMVs um, not taking the opportunity to listen, learn, and act before acting, um, and I'm not just picking on your state. I'm picking my own state of New York. Uh, I'm very frustrated in, in, in states like, like New York who have, uh, and they're not the only ones, but they have, they're currently issuing three types of licenses, real IDs, enhanced IDs, and a standard ID. If we were to take on and, and be successful in digitizing these types of issued credentials, well, then verifiers would be so much easier to be able to apply business policy like not being able to accept a standard credential knowing that citizenship is not required, that may be important for certain business policies. But today, when those credentials are being issued and you're relying on human verification, 
error is going to happen. It's, it's just, it happens today. And that causes problems. So I, I really feel there's a huge upside on the, um, the application of uh, business policies and, and avoidance of, of risk if we were to move into a decentralized and digital credential model. But unfortunately, the, the direction that many of the DMVs are going is they're, they're not looking at the broader options that are out there and they're, they're relying on what, what um, is being done in ISO today. I love this example. Uh, you, you almost can't have an SSI discussion with someone without talking about a driver's license somehow, somewhere. And I think about the example of, of getting pulled over. No one likes to be pulled over, but with self-sovereign identity, when you get pulled over, the officer doesn't even have to get out of the car. Um, I, I could just by proximity recognize by receiving a credential by a, a, a legal uh, law enforcement authority uh, by policy, I share the information that he's going to request. Of course, he can just request it. And then I can say, well, my policy is that I want to choose. But my policy, my personally is, hey, if you're a law enforcement officer, here's just go ahead and, and have my proof of insurance, have my registration. These are in a digital form. You, and he doesn't have to get out of his car. I mean, maybe he's got other reasons to get out of his car. But before we've even come to a stop, these things can be can be shared with him. And and my insurance company is Bear River Mutual Insurance. It's not the state. It's it's so I could have a digital attestation from, from my insurance company that's acceptable to them. They know that that's a legitimate insurance company and that proves that the car is insured. And that's just one of the things that he might be able to, to get from me. My, my point is, it is really just coinciding with yours. This is so much bigger than just a driver's license. Once there is the ability to exchange attest, digitally signed attestations, which we call verifiable credentials, it just opens up so many things. And how much does that now aid in this, the safety of the officer who didn't have to come up to the car? What if, thank you. Thank you. This yeah. is exactly, I, we, we, in the work we've done, law enforcement loves this, this whole notion, because as you said, they don't have to get out of a car. Right. And they're not going to take on changes to their process today. And this is my argument against ISO 18013 part five and where the DMVs are going. My argument is that, why would an officer take on a model that only handles one possible document that they have to deal with? They have so much to worry about today. These men and women are at risk all the time. The technology should not get in the way. Technology should be aiding them and making them safer and making them be more, more um, uh, productive out, out on the streets. With, by, by defining a solution that is only, and I'm going to use the words that ISO uses, cross-jurisdictional and not cross-industry multi-document interoperable, which is what we're advocating, cross-industry multi-document interoperability, I feel that they're going down a path whereby organizations like AMVA, the American Association for Motor Vehicle Administrators, who lead all the driver's license DMVs, and, and working with ISO, what they're doing is they're basically setting folks up, our states up for technical debt and our citizens up for privacy pain points down the road. And it's going to be harder for us, which we see this problem today and we're, we've, we're building the trust over IP architecture we've talked about as a way to educate them, to help bootstrap them on this journey to, to address all these types of problems. 
unfortunately, I'm not seeing them willing to listen and learn. You know, um, let's go into La La Land for just a minute. I think this is a really interesting topic. And when I say La La Land, this is just an area that is is beyond what I think these folks know is even possible. But go with me here for just a second. What if I, as a, a law-abiding citizen, am willing to give that officer control over my vehicle so that I can't leave? I, I, I literally give him consent or her consent to not allow my car to leave until he or she says I can. Why, why couldn't we do that? I, I, I'm fine with that. I bet you it's illegal for me to, after he's pulled me over, I bet you it's illegal for me to just drive away anyway. So why not? How much safer would that officer feel if, it re- if he or she received consent that the car was completely disabled and under his or her control and couldn't move again? I know, I know that sounds crazy, but these are the kinds of conversations that we could now have. And but I why could. Is it, but why is it crazy, Timothy? Because we're, we're it's so different. It's so it's it's but, wild but, compared to the world we live in today. I got. But, but but so this is so back to my frustration, right? Um, we've been looking at the, the the digital credential problem for a while with the states around specifically around driver's licenses. And what appalls me is many states. I'll pick one in particular, California, um, who they're focusing on on autonomous, right? You know, the ability for these drug cars to drive you know, without um, a car, someone behind it. And think about this. Think of the problems that this arises. Who, when, car, when that car that has no driver associated with it gets into a traffic uh, situation, who's, who has the credentials for the car? Who's the, who's the driver that gets for the license for the car, right? My point is, how can you go and deal with autonomous vehicles before you deal with the problem of digital credentials. Well, and, and that's a fantastic uh, point, Dan, because you and I both know that with verifiable credentials, we can solve that problem because now because the credentials can be used by IOT devices. It's people, places, and things. Absolutely. An autonomous car is just a thing. It has authority to drive on the road. And once it's possible, we could easily see legislation. I, I'm not the kind of guy who says there should be another law, but these, when you come to, you know, vehicles that can kill people, I think we should have sensible, you know, regulations over these things. But I could see a regulation that says, all right, if you're going to have an autonomous vehicle on the road, then you have to be able to, uh, subjugate or give over the control of that vehicle to a law enforcement officer when a when a, a legit legitimate law enforcement officer says, "Hey, you need to pull over, or you need to stop, or you need to do whatever." And the amazing thing is, is with verifiable credentials. Guess what? The law enforcement officer can prove that that he or she is authentic to the vehicle. The vehicle can then respond and say, yep, I know you're authentic. Here you go. You're in control. This absolutely is possible. It, it's possible. But once again, we're, we're technologists, right? And the real problem here is that is political. Folks, it's the <laughs> folks that are, you know, I don't, I don't even want to say political. Sometimes it's, it's unfortunately um, it's reality. It's where the it's where the 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 lobbyists and the and the pressure, the market pressures are coming. Right? You know, in California, you have big companies that are interested in autonomous cars. Right? Um, that are trying to put the legislation. But at the end of the day, when you try to get these out on the, in the, in the on the road, the legalities. Think about if you've been in a, in a traffic accident or something before. How hard it is just for humans to deal with getting all of the information 
the data, right? The trusted data between your claim, their claim, the officer's records, right? This is all data that's per, put, used for the insurance companies. Well, imagine having to do that for with autonomous cars. You, if you don't have the ability to deal with these 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 this data in a digital manner, right? How can you move to autonomous? So my point is, how, why are DMVs focusing on problem and uh, you know n plus one without solving n yet? And N being driver's licenses, as well as all of the digital credentials necessary for law enforcement to be using in traffic stops. Well, and, and the larger point here that that to, to go back to where we started on this tangent, which I think is a wonderful tangent, um, and, and that is you, you are wanting, and I am, am right along cheering with you. You're wanting the states who are looking at information. I think with Utah, it was an RFI request for information. You're just wanting them to broaden their aperture and understand the new things here. The, the stuff that we're talking about with autonomous vehicles and taking control of the car. Okay, that's just kind of a weird idea we came up with right here on the show about that, that could be you know, possible in the future. But the point is, is that if they broaden their aperture and understand verifiable credentials, they can solve the, the problem today about issuing driver's licenses in a powerful new way, but do it in a way that leaves them the ability to do, to solve all of these other problems. Cause it's the same core technology, right? It, it, so yes. And so what this really comes down to state by state, step aside from the, the current procurement models and procurement legislation and, and take some time to kick the tires, to listen and learn before acting. That's all we're asking. In many cases, companies like IBM are willing to, to, to help bootstrap that, begin that journey. We're not asking for procurement up front. There's so, just on this conversation, there's so many what ifs to, 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 to investigate, right? And to incubate. But if we don't do so, we're just going to create technical debt that's going to cause us much more problems, many more problems down the road. Yeah, well, there's there's an exciting breakthrough in digital trust, and you just want them to okay, just check it out, get understand it. Don't make any big long term decisions and dive into a long term contract, and you know before you at least understand what's happening. And if if they conclude it's too early, right, not ready yet, that's fine. But at least take a look, right? Absolutely. And, and take a look, but be aware, take an informed decision that if you go down a path today, that that path may not be something that you can migrate from or to later, you know, from to, to, to our model later, that you may have to throw it away. And that may be fine. In other words, you're taking a tactical approach, all fine and good, but, but not at least taking the time to listen and learn to me is frustrating and troublesome. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, uh, let's, let's end on that note because what you're really talking about is don't create another silo, right? Don't, don't, don't embolden another silo. The whole point with this show and all the technologies related to it is to make it so that, that customers are portable, users are portable. And that includes a state instead of being locked into a particular vendor and a, a particular methodology and way of doing things, giving themselves, you know, get away from vendor lock-in, get to a situation where you can move between things. And that is, you know, the arena. So Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. We, that was an unexpected tangent and it did probably add a little bit of, of length to the show, but some very important content that I think a lot of people are going to get a lot out of. So, so 
Once again, thank you so much for taking your time, excited about what you're doing and what IBM is doing and all the sacrifices that you made. Thank you for joining us on Breaking Silos. Thanks, Timothy. This has been another episode of Breaking Silos. If you have any feedback, ideas, or questions about the show or this episode, or working with us at Digital Trust Ventures, we invite you to visit digitaltrust.vc and get in touch. Thanks for listening.